0: Hi everyone, Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress, where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. Hi guys, today's podcast is an especially fun one because I am such a huge fan of our guest, like such a huge fan that I started quoting her comedy album to her, it's fine. It's fine, we actually managed to do an interview. Anyway, it's Natasha Leggero. She's one of my favorite comedians and today we are getting into so many things, what it was like to put out her first album, working on her show, another period, her thoughts on the phrase, thank you so much, and so much more. I just love her. Enjoy. I told you something before we started recording, and I feel like it's really relevant for the audience to understand. Besides just me being obsessed with you because you're very funny, they need to know how long this has been a one-sided relationship until today. I was telling you when you sat down, that I told my best friend Jenny that you were here today. I actually was like, do you want to pretend to, like, work with Josh and come and sit in on this interview? And sadly, (laughs) she couldn't because she has a job. I was trying to get her out of it for the day, but alas, not here. But Jenny and I literally, over the years, I can't tell you how many road trips we have taken across this beautiful country we live in and listened to Coke Money, which is your first comedy record, over and
1: over. Even if you know what the joke is. Oh my God, it doesn't matter. Do you know how funny you are? But like like with comedy, you don't, isn't part of the joke a surprise? It's a surprise. I like that you're putting it on like a music album.
0: Literally. Like, (laughs) like if Spotify was doing the rap then it would have been one of my most listened to things of the year. It's
1: from many years ago. But I do think I predicted a Trump presidency on it. Oh, my God. It's did from, you? like— I feel like you might have. It's from eight years ago, but I remember saying something— I had some joke about, like, the reality TV stars are oh, going to no. become the presidents. And then and then I had something about Trump specifically.
0: Because you're very smart.
1: I mean, sometimes I can intuit things, I guess. Fuck. I'm like, did you jinx us? Is this your fault? No! <laughs> it's not no, my fault. But, God, that But record... when Ivanka takes over, it will be my fault. Yeah, no, that's fair.
0: <laughs> you're like, oh, my God. Everything smells like money. <laughs> you— Like, just so you understand how deeply in all of us it is, if we're out somewhere, especially if, you know, my friends are lovely people who will come to me to events with me, which sometimes are the worst, but they come as moral support. And like, if an event is not great or the people around us are rude, our code is always like, we'll be at the bar and we'll get a drink and one of us will look at the other one and be like, thank you so much.
1: (laughs) And that means that it's time to go.
0: Like, or just that, like, (laughs) this is the worst. Like, these people are the worst. That's so funny. I mean, that's
1: from a joke where, like, I worked at a bar for many years. And I just remember, like, you know, clocking in and then bringing these, like, rich people their drinks. And I was wearing a cat suit. And then they would just be like, thank you so much. (laughs) And I just wanted to, like, kill every single person I interacted with. It It was a challenging life, I guess, for a few years. And then look where you are. I'm in in the in the most uh <laughs> beautiful part of Hollywood. Hollywood and Vine. Hey. Okay. We've made it. We've made
0: it. <laughs> uh, on Sundays there's a farmers market here which I really like. So
1: Right out here? You've never been to this farmers market? I try to avoid this section of Hollywood, of no course. Girl,
0: <laughs> I'm not kidding. This is my one of my favorite farmers markets in Southern California.
1: Okay, well, Every Sunday. Let's let's meet there one okay. afternoon and You can impress all your friends. Deal.
0: (laughs) I won't tell Jenny you're coming and she'll just faint on the sidewalk. You're
1: welcome. That makes me very happy to hear, though. No, it's like— That you could—that the jokes still resonate with you.
0: Oh, yeah. Like, you have no arms and toilet, baby, and, like, I'll just never get over it. It's one of my favorite. (laughs) It just is. It's a stamp in time on life. And also, I just think that you're brilliant. So anyway, I'm starting to make this awkward. Super excited that
1: you're here. I'm so
0: excited <laughs> to be here. And I love that you also do your podcast in this office. I we do. share an office.
1: Well, I do it when we have guests, but mm. I try to do it as much as possible in my robe at home. Love that. I'm actually about to start doing that. You should. And I'm stoked. It makes it much easier. Yeah. I like to conduct business in my robe.
0: <laughs> yeah, I like to stay in sweatpants as much of the time as possible. Exactly. I feel that. So I like to go backwards with people okay. a little bit and and get into, you know, who they were when they were the mini versions of themselves. Were you at nine or ten, were you funny and precocious and observing the world around you? what was what what was Natasha's stick as a kid?
1: I think I was I was very obnoxious. I think my first thing I remember is, like, my first grade teacher, like, it was always someone's turn to watch the room when she would go smoke. But, like, she would say she was taking a break. But remember, like, teachers would take, they would just be gone for, like, 12 minutes Mm. all the time. At least where I'm from, they would be in Illinois. And I remember one day it was my turn to, like, be in charge of the class. And I just remember the teacher rolled her eyes. And she was like, oh, God, her. And, like, I just think I was just, like, really obnoxious and bad and always in trouble and like
0: were you obnoxious and bad or were you funny and thus diverted attention perhaps from learning but toward jokes
1: like I remember you know like I I remember teaching everyone what a slut was (laughs) because like I was I was a child actor so I would go to the theater and I would hang out with all these like older people going through midlife crises (laughs) who somehow hung out with me like we would all go to like eat all the time so I was like hanging out with like 30-year-olds who were kind of failed actors from Chicago who had, like, come to Rockford to do, like, regional theater, which means, like, half-townspeople, half-professionals. So then I would, like, learn these things and then come back to school and, like, tell everybody. And then I also remember, I, I this can't be true, but it is a memory of being pulled out of Girl Scouts by my feet... Because I was, like, under the table telling all the girls, like, you have a vagina, and you have a vagina, and you have... Because I just thought, like, they should know, and I learned the word, and I thought it was so cool, and I just was always in trouble, you know? I think swearing was very connected to it, like, Mm -hmm. shocking, like, Mm -hmm. you know? There
0: was a kid in my elementary school like that. He had an older brother who was, like, a bad kid, which probably doesn't actually mean anything, but when we were little, that scared us. And I remember he came to school one day this boy in my class and was flipping everybody off. And I didn't know what a middle finger meant. And I knew that he was like trying to get a rise out of me. So when he did it to me, I was like, I don't care. And he was like, oh, you don't care. And I was like, no, I don't care. And then immediately when my mom picked me up from school, I got in the car. I was like, mom, what does this mean? And she was like, oh my God,
1: <laughs> what's happening on the playground? That's the scariest part about having a kid is because like, I feel like that being bad made me successful. Like, you kind of want someone who's a little bad. But not when you're a mom. That's a conundrum. Yeah. Oh, man. Because I like the fact that I was, like, trying to break rules and trying to shock people and trying to, you know, explore things I shouldn't explore and, you know.
0: Yeah, that's probably why you're a comedian. And then you, I would imagine, have a innate feeling with your child that you want them to stay inside of the lines and be protected and be good. And
1: I definitely relate to Rapun- was it Rapunzel <laughs> when yeah. the mom just puts <laughs> her in a castle. Just, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's very challenging. Yeah,
0: it's got to just be such a trip. And does it make you look back on your own childhood differently?
1: Well, my childhood, like, that's one thing that you start to learn about comedians. Like, most stand-up comedians that I have met— they definitely, like, once you talk to them, you learn there's something pretty big that they overcame, mm-hmm. whether it be, like, not getting enough love from one parent, which is usually a theme among them. <laughs> and we're not talking about funny people. Like, yeah. you know, like, usually if, if you're funny and you got love from both your parents, you become an improviser. <laughs> really? I don't know. I mean, that's just a, a theory. Interesting. But stand-ups, you start talking to them and you're like, oh, you know, someone slashed your face when you were a child, or, you know, your brother died, or, Hmm. you know, you wet the bed until you were 12, or, you know, your dad abandoned your family, and you know what I mean? It's like, there's always, like, often, not, of course, not always, but there's often a a dark streak, or sometimes, you know, it's not so bad, it's just like my parents were divorced, and, you know, I was neglected, and I had a very, um, I had a brother who was, like, kind of ruined the family you know, like he was just like very bad, you know, like we would wake up in the morning and he would be like, you know, in the tree barking and he had like mowed like fuck you into the lawn. Like he was like an insane person, you know, who was like not medicated. He would like break into the because my mom had to like lock the garage because she didn't want him to like get to the power tools. And like we would all watch ourselves after school and then he would like break into the garage and like saw off his own cast and like take off he took off his own braces with pliers like he was just like he was just but you know he has lived in a van for the past 30 years and so it's like I do feel you know some people and it's weird because we were raised the same way you know Mm -hmm. so it is hard when you have a child too and like now I had one and she's really good so I'm like okay I'm done I don't know what else could happen. You know, you, you never right. know. Like I got a good one, so yeah. You're like, not that I'm my brother's not-, not good, but I think he yeah. he required something that he, we weren't. My mother wasn't able to provide for yeah. him. I think.
0: Well, and when you think back, too, we have such an amazing amount of resources, research, information, access to mental health mm-hmm. conversations at our fingertips. Now that wasn't true when we were kids. Nobody yeah. was talking about this stuff. It's so true. Like, I, I just, I can't help but think, and you know, I'm not a parent at this point in my life, but I can't help but think how lucky we all are and how lucky our kids are, this generation of you Right. Know, now babies. you can tell
1: your, tell your parents you're non-binary and they're like, they'll get in a support group. Yeah. And they're like, like cool. It out. How can I, mean, I support you? We forget like the first Obama term, he was against gay marriage. You know, because it's it was like, so
0: politically unpopular,
1: right? So it's like, and that wasn't that long ago. So, yeah. you know, we've come so far. In, mm-hmm. in and, I mean, obviously, there's still so much further we have to go, but yeah, you know, from my childhood, I think there's such an open dialogue about things and mm-hmm. about needing help and medication. And, yeah. y- you know, it was, yeah, people, no one knew what his problem was. Wow, you know, but anyway, I'm here, and you're funny. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, but yes. So, wait, what what was the question, though? I feel like I digressed. Oh, I was just asking
0: if having a kid now and thinking about all this stuff makes you think about your childhood and
1: badness. badness, Yes, for sure. Yes. What were you into? I was also having sex at 14, so I hope that doesn't happen. Right. You're like, that might not have been great for me. But, yeah, I'm glad I didn't get pregnant. I remember. Thank you. Yeah. I remember getting on. That was like a primary goal of mine was to get on the pill. You know, like it was like I I remember skipping school. Yeah, I would skip school and I had my my friend like took took her car, took her mom's car, and we all went and got on the pill to the health department, Planned Parenthood, which is very important to support. Very
0: important. Yeah. You mentioned regional theater in Rockford. You started doing that at eight? That's how old you were when you began? Maybe 10. 10. So how did that start for you? Because you said, you know, very casually, you're like, yeah, I was doing theater and all these old people were telling me about their problems. But like, how does a kid wind up doing regional theater? Did you always want to be an
1: actor? Well, my mother, I feel like my mom did two really great things for me, which was she got me braces. (laughs) So I think that really helped. Yeah. Like, I mean, I never realized it, like all the orthodontist appointments because we were very poor, but somehow she like got me braces. And then she like always had me in classes and she was putting me in the swim class and they were full at the Y and they were like, do you want to do this acting class? So Mm. she signed me up for that and then took me to it. And I was always in a Catholic uniform. So they when they needed a kid, they remembered me, I guess, because I was in this uniform and then called like all the Catholic schools, found me. And then I like had an audition. And then I was like the child who played like every part and like whenever they needed. So I would I would often get to not go to school for like. Wednesdays, you know, we'd have matinees on Wednesdays and then like for rehearsal. And then at night, I was always rehearsing. And, you know, it was like a very rich life and I loved it. And then when the play would end, I would like start hyperventilating and being like, I need to return to the theater. (laughs) And so I feel like my whole life, I really had, I feel very lucky that I was able to have that sort of. What's the, it's not even a goal. like like just I just had this idea in my head that mm. I had to be in the theater. And it was like the only place where I could escape and be who I wanted to be. And I didn't have to be in this like terrible family where my brother was like wreaking havoc and no one got along. And, mm. you know, it was always fighting. And, you know, so I think that kind of drove me through a lot of hardship mm. that it takes to try to have a life in the arts. Because you have to be able to have, which I'm sure you know, like people will say no to you so much and you have to become so resilient. And, you know, I had no idea how anything worked. Mm -hmm. You know, I like was in New York for five years. Well, I mean, I don't want to skip ahead, but I thought, I I, first of all, then because of my inflated ego from being like a child, I say actor, not star, (laughs) because I was not a child star. In Rockford, like I thought Juilliard would like let me in just from my headshot. Mm. So I like sent them my headshot and then, you know, of course I got like, so I started very confident and then just got like turned down and turned down and turned down and turned down. And I remember like DePaul University when I was graduating college, they were, they sent me a letter, which now I know is a form letter, but they were like, after your audition, we've reviewed And we think that your talents would be much better suited to our tech theater department. (laughs) So I was like, they think I should be a lighting designer. Like I was just like so upset over it all. But like, obviously, they needed to fill their tech theater department. But, you know, my family didn't know anything about theater. So they were just like, yeah, maybe they're right. And, you know, maybe it's too hard. So, you know, just having to like steer your whole ship your whole life. And not having any connections and not knowing how things work and doing lots of embarrassing things. And, you know, it's—but anyway, I'm glad I did it all. And I'm glad I had that strong feeling as a child that was like, I have to do this or I'm going to die. Because that's kind of the only way I was able to, you know, get success is because I couldn't—I never had a backup plan. Right. So I'm
0: guessing—I was going to ask what it was like the first time you stepped out on stage and was it scary. I'm guessing it was awesome.
1: That's well, that is interesting because like, so I I decided to do stand up like cut to I moved to New York for five years, couldn't even get a commercial agent. It was terrible. I was like, cocktailing. That's where you know, part of the thank you so much mm. came in. I was like cocktail waitressing at the whiskey bar. And I remember like, I, I just had no clue what anything how to do anything like if a woman came in from I remember this woman came in from Young and the Restless the soap opera. And I came to her table and like got on my hands and knees. And I was like, can you please get your get my head shot to your boss so I can be on your like, I just didn't understand anything. You know, I was just like begging because I was like, yeah. I know I have to be an actress. I don't have any connections. No one's telling me how to do it. So I just in my head, I would just do what I thought. I mean, it was very pathetic looking back. Oh, no. But I was trying so hard, you know, and Basically, it was like a lot of failed attempts. And I finally almost got an agent. And I've told this story before. But, you know, I, I was like, in New York, I had gone to Stella, Stella Adler Conservatory. I had got my degree because my, that's another thing my mom did. She was like, you have to get your degree. Mm-hmm. So I got my de- my degree from Hunter College in theater criticism, because they didn't have like a BA department. What does theater
0: criticism
1: mean? It's like you you know, it's like what Dorothy Parker did. It's like you go and review theater. I mean, it's not really a, a profession anymore, I don't think. But that's like, and then I minored in like art history or something, but just to get it for her. And then I went to the conservatory for two years. And then I was like doing things like begging soap opera actresses to like get my headshot to someone. And basically, I almost, so I would like every day I was pounding the pavement, like literally like giving, walking up to the door, giving people my headshots and then I finally, I got this call to meet with this agent. And then it was like this, you know, good agency in New York. And then I had like my third callback with him. And he brought the whole entire like agency to see me. And I did this like monologue from, I think it was Balm and Gilead. It was this, this Lamford Wilson play. And I played Darlene. And I remember I actually cried in the monologue. Like I would never cried before. And like I walked out of there and I was like, wow, like the emotion like actually, it was like the best acting I'd ever done, and the guy's like, "Okay, call me at three thirty. I'm going to talk to all the other agents." And I was like, "Okay, great." So I called him from Hunter College, where I was like finishing up my studies. And I remember I was at a payphone, and he was like, "His name was Al Flanagan," and he was like, oh, "I was like, it's Natasha. You know, is Al there?" And he's like, "Hi, Natasha." He's like, "I've just talked to all the other agents, and we think you're you're so talented, but we've we've decided you're just too short to be an actress." <laughs> what? (laughs) He's like, there's exceptions. You know, I remember he said Holly hunt. He's like cited Holly Hunter. He was like, you know, she was able to make it, but it's like, it's so rare. I just don't think that you'll be able to make it. And like, I collapsed in my, in my college, like parking or in the, uh, what's it called? The payphone like area, you know, like it was like a row of payphones, yeah. not a private one. And I was on my knees and I was like heaving, sobbing in like the Upper East Side. Oh, no. And then I called my roommate and she kinda talked me down because she was also an actress. And you know, she's like, fuck that guy. But anyway, that was basically like my experience in New York. It was awful. Oh, and so God. then I moved to LA. I'm trying to still trying to tell you about the first time I was ever on stage doing stand-up. So I moved to LA and I saw I saw this girl. I heard this girl was doing stand up. Who went to my conservatory, and I was like, stand up, because I had and ne- had never been on my radar. And then I went and saw her at the comedy store, and I was like, oh, that's stand up. Like you can just like stand on a stage and like talk about your thoughts about like how lame people in L.A. are, because like it was so different from like New York to L.A. Yeah. And anyway, yeah. So I I took this class and the class just basically taught you how to just, I mean, it was very loose. He was every day. It was this guy, Adam Barnhart. He was just like, okay, tell us about your day. And then we talk about it. And it was like just slowly to get confidence being on stage. So finally we had a show. And I remember I locked myself in my apartment. I had never seen any, any standups live except this girl. And I locked myself in my apartment and made myself for like 48 hours. I don't even think we had cell phones then because it was like 20 years ago, like right on like five different topics. And then we had the show, like as soon as I got out of that like hovel, I went, it was like the next night was my show. And then I killed. (laughs) And I wasn't expecting people to laugh, like, because we had done it in the class. But like, it was like, it wasn't like work. I don't know. I had these like worked out bits just from that two days stuck in my apartment, you know. Mm. And then I was like, it was like, it was a visceral experience. Like it was definitely Aww. physical. Like, cause I would say something and then they would all laugh. And and it was also a bringer room in the belly room. So those are like very easy. It's full of friends. Like I didn't really have friends there, but a lot, it was like, they would laugh at probably anything. That's part of the reason why I did so well. But anyway, I just wasn't prepared for that. And then I was hooked. And then my second show, I bombed really hard. Ooh. And then I remember coming back home and laying down on my bed and just thinking, like, okay, this is going to, like, take a while. Whoa. So I had, like, a little bit of guidance, I felt, just from even myself. Was
0: it that first show that went so well that you really realized you were funny? Or do you think you'd realized earlier?
1: Well, people were always laughing when I would talk, but I wasn't really aware why, Like aware of why. <laughs> Who knew? Well, you know, like <laughs> yeah. I, like, even in, like, being really young, I just remember like being in Spanish class and asking questions and people would always laugh. And I'm like, why are they laughing? And they're like, well, that just sounded funny. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Like maybe it was the way I was talking or, you know, my level of being obnoxious was like very high. (laughs) But um, yeah, I think that's I mean, I don't think that's uh, that that must have been part of where I because I wasn't focused on comedy in New York when I was like trying to get an agent. I was trying to like Be in a soap opera, I think, because that's who I, you know, I was just trying to, like, randomly be an actress. Sure. And then when I, like, discovered stand-up, and then, then shortly after that, I was like, oh, I can, like, act in comedy things, and that would be so much more fun.
0: So what happens first night's a success, second night's a bomb. You realize this is going to take some time. Then where do you go? What What do you do with that realization?
1: Well, you start hanging out with other comedians and you start seeing what they're doing. And a lot of them, you know, were like going up twice a night. So I made a, I made a um, calendar and I was like, I have to go up seven times a week or whatever it was five times a week. And I would tally it up every month. And I was like, this is, this, this month it was 32 times. This month it was like 27. I have to go up more. I just kind of like, just from hanging out with comedians at the comedy store, they were all, like, really hardcore into, like, putting in your dues. And that was, like, what everybody, you know, and then we would all wait for, like, showcases. And there was, like, a very vibrant scene when I was coming up. And, like, some of the mm. people I came up with were, like, Morgan Murphy and Jen Kirkman. And then there were, like, a lot of people who were, like, a little older than us or, or like, more advanced than us. Like, then it was, like, Tig and Sarah Silverman and yeah. Mark Marin and those people, you kind of see them at your shows, but we would be, like, the young up and coming people, I guess. Kyle Kinane. I'm trying to think who else. They'll come to me. But it was, yeah. So you just start like hanging out with all these people and then all the comedy store people. Mm -hmm. And I just was like, I don't know how, I wish I was that diligent now. I mean, I don't know where that energy came from to like be that just strict with myself because I'm really not now. Maybe I'm just, I already did that. (laughs) (laughs) Like, do you get to relax? I don't know. You know, like, I definitely was not relaxed. I was like, you know, pretty, pretty freaked out by like, you know, I have to, I was just like very, you know, I just had a, I was very driven. That's so cool. Did you ever find you did something like that? Like, I have to, I kind of did the math in my head. And I was like, to be a woman and to be as good as these people. And, and you started to see too, every time you go up on stage, you're like, oh, I've worked that bit out. Oh, that's actually funny. And then mm. people start giving you all this advice. Like, I remember I had a friend who was like, start listening to what people laugh at when you're talking in conversation, because that might be a clue to what's funny about you. Yeah, and then wow. I had another friend who was like, you know, when you dress up more on stage, you seem more like you can get away with more because people uh-huh. think you're like not really being yourself so you can be like a little more mean and so like you start like every time you go up you like learn something new mm-hmm. so it was pretty clear to me i was only going to get better if i kept doing that and yeah. i think most comedians who are successful have a probably a similar story because you it's one acting like you can get lucky like didn't Ashton Kutcher, like, just move here, audition for the 70s show, and then, like, get on? I think he had, like, one audition. That's insane. I, I don't know if that's for sure, but I'm sure that is, like, how, what happens for some people. Yeah. But for a comedian, you really, like, have to—to to get good, you have to go up constantly. For, like, probably five years. I don't know. Wow. No, that's so cool. Or more. I, mean, I don't know.
0: I didn't, I didn't have it quite like that because, for me— I started auditioning for stuff. I started working when I was a freshman in college. Um, my parents would never let me audition for anything before.
1: and But you knew that's what you wanted to do.
0: Yeah. I mean, I thought I wanted to be a doctor. And then I did a play and was like, oh my God, English is my favorite subject. And look at this. It's books come to life. And my parents were like, fuck. <laughs> Please go to medical school. Because you were like all on the doctor track. Oh, Yeah. And they, uh, I they should just, remember that for
1: my daughter. Oof. I should try to shelter her from the stage.
0: <laughs> yeah, it'll 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 fuck you up. Um, no, but look, it's good that you Yeah, no, it worked
1: out. And You'd probably be a bad doctor. Then you know. couldn't have that great manicure. I,
0: you know, I know. <laughs> I'm, this was one of my 2020 resolutions was that I was actually going to get my nails done like a goddamn adult. And I'm sticking to it.
1: My husband once, he was like, I was like, do you notice when I get my nails done? He was like, no. And I was like, oh, okay. So I just never did it again. <laughs> Why should I sit there if he's not? I guess I to, to maybe try to attract other men. I just like it. To make women like, I don't know. I just feel like I don't want to sit there. I don't want to sit there either, but. I mean, I like yours. I like Actually, it. I'm glad that you have yours done because it's pretty to look at. So Thanks. maybe I should do that.
0: I just kind of. For was everyone like, around me. I got to do something for myself and it makes me feel nice. And so often I do this, like. I dress like a teenage boy. I wear like Vans and jeans and a t-shirt every day.
1: You're right. If my nails were done, I'd feel so much better right you now. You know what I
0: mean? It just makes me feel kind of…
1: Do it for you. Yeah.
0: I'm like a tomboy with a manicure, you know?
1: <laughs> but… Oh, so you didn't become a doctor. Oh,
0: right. So yeah, I did not become a doctor, obviously.
1: And That would be cool, though, if you were an actress who was who also had like a doctorate. It would be
0: <laughs> fucking rad. Honestly, I might someday. You never know. I I was at a conference at Harvard in April of 2019. And I was like, oh, my God, all I want to do is come back to school. Really? All I want to do. And um, long story longer, I was auditioning through school. I was working. I worked on a couple of TV shows. I, like, made this cool HBO movie. And then I booked my first show. And I was 21. And I had to leave college before my senior year. I almost didn't take the show because I thought, I'm going to miss my senior year in college. And it's like a seminal moment in my life. Thank God, my advisor in the journalism school was like, "Are you out of your mind? Go do the thing. What's wrong with you?" And then I was on that show for nine years. so it's like I sort of I wound up on a runaway train with no preparation, no clue what was happening, no clue
1: like we all got there. I'd been 21 for three weeks. Like, none of us knew how to be adults. That's pretty amazing, though, because it's like it is a little bit of a roll of the dice. And, like, you obviously had the talent to get the part, but the fact that the show worked and everything about the show came together for it to last nine years. It was insane. That's, like, very lucky and really cool. It was insane. And and so I never,
0: I never had the time to dedicate myself to something because we were— you know, our first season… You're like
1: Ashton Kutcher. You got your <laughs> first audition.
0: No way. Oh, my God. It takes thousands of auditions. It's no, I know, I know. But it it was weird because the schedule was so nuts. And our first season, we were doing 18-hour days every and day. And you were
1: 21? I was 21. Oh, my God. By the way, let me just say, if I would have gotten successful at 21, I would have been such a bitch. I already know that. Like, I didn't really have introspective thoughts till mm. I was, like, in my late 20s.
0: <laughs> I… I mean, I love that. I have way too much, like, deeply ingrained— And even my parents are like, where does this come from? All we've ever done for your whole life is told you we're proud of you. Like, why are you like this? The, the amount of self-doubt I carry around is so high that I, I've i always second-guessed everything that's ever worked for me. You have imposter syndrome? Majorly. And weirdly, I'm also— because I love data and I also am obsessed with people. If I am showing up for other people, there's no one more sure, no one more poised. Like I can show up at a rally and give a speech in front of half a million people. I've done it and be fine. But if it's for me, I'm like, I'm like one of those old Disney cartoons where like the skeleton falls apart and the bones just end up (laughs) in a pile on the floor. Like I don't have it in for myself i have it for other people do you have brothers or sisters i don't my parents oh. had a very similar thing they were like she's healthy and also my mom almost died after i was born she had like a gnarly post pregnancy complication oh and so th- i think the the trauma of that and then also the fear of like what if what if it doesn't go right the next time my parents just kept putting off having another kid and then suddenly they were like oops it's been too long
1: <laughs> so you weren't mean to people when you were a 21 year old star On a hit show. By the way, I'm sure there are people who think that
0: I was mean to them.
1: Um, But I honestly— You didn't ask people to, like, check the temperature of your coffee? Oh, God. (laughs) I remember— Did you have, like, people around you? There must have been people who were assholes around you. Are you kidding? I literally had a a coworker
0: who knocked a bunch of food off the craft service table one day and, like, left it there. And I was standing there making a coffee, like, looking and looking at her and looking at it and looking at her. And— Finally, I was like, "This fucking bitch," and I say that with love. Like, when you grow up on a TV show with people, there's literally no one you love more and no one you hate more. It's like siblings. Like,
1: mm-hmm.
0: we can we can fight like cats and dogs, but if any person on the planet talks shit about anyone on our show, n- we will come for you so fast. Like, that's we're cool. We're like I'm a sure real that's family
1: not in every show.
0: <laughs> no, and by the way, there were years where it was miserable and years where it was great. Like, I'm not going to gloss over it, but you know, at the end of the day, we're a family. And I remember. I was like, what is the matter with you? And I was like, whatever. And I grabbed some paper towels. I start picking it up. And she literally goes, what are you doing? There's people for that.
1: Oh, my God.
0: <laughs> and I was like, okay, we're going to have to have a, a conversation.
1: Because that's a no. Did Was she it's open just no. to that when you told her? Because sometimes you just need to be told. Yeah. Yeah. She was. It's a process becoming like an awake, good person. And yes. sometimes if you're not taught certain things, you know, you kind of have to like...
0: For sure. But I think everyone has a version of that. Like, I I have learned... There's people. Literally. I was like, who are you, mommy dearest? Like, what... And now when, now, I, I remember I told that story recently. We were all together and I was like, I just have to ask if you remember. She goes, oh my God, I was awful. And we were
1: crying laughing. Like Yeah, it was because it's like, you're just too young. You're a child. To know the difference. No, and for me. And then you have people like, my, my husband said, he, he was working on a set and he heard it. I won't say who, this, oh, this older actress, like in her 60s, tell the child on the set not to talk to the extras or the crew. Wow. <laughs> She's like, you're not supposed to talk to them. So I'm just saying like, you know, there's also all this other, there is still bad influence too that's only like making you worse.
0: Oh, of course. And it's also weird. It's like you're also trying to be good. You're trying to please everybody. You know, it's bizarre. But what what was hard for me and I think what has probably created weird interactions for me with people over the years is I've learned, you know, back then you were either an extrovert or an introvert, right? So I was like, I mean, I guess I'm an extrovert. But I am actually… What am I? I'm an introverted extrovert or what?
1: what I'm the same way. And I think it also has to do with getting a little older. Mm. You know, it's like you start... Well, you know what it is? It's like, how do you recharge? Because I love Mm -hmm. being... Extroverted, but then if I need like time or space to like yep. create or think or relax, mm-hmm. I want to be alone. Same. My husband, he, if he wants to relax, he's like, I need to find a party. I need to go, I need to go hang out with my friends. We need to do board yeah. games. We need to go. I'm like, you're driving to Santa Barbara to a wedding? We just landed from Paris. And he's like, See, I'm like that too. Oh, okay. So he, yeah. So it's like, but that's how he like recharges and relaxes. So I have a bit of a
0: split. And mm-hmm. what I have found in my experience and what I didn't understand how to identify then is mine really shows up. I don't deal well with with lack of boundaries and what I learned the hard way was like being a kid on TV. Everyone thinks they know you. But to you, everyone is a stranger. And what I have really struggled with over the years, I don't actually do well with attention. I don't like it. I don't like having my picture taken. I don't like I don't like the approach. I don't I don't like it.
1: Well, it's very different than like film acting or TV acting too, right? Because it's like you've got cameras or stillness. That you're making decisions it's in the moment. Quite,
0: yeah, it's th- that's actually really intimate. And this, and and the attention that people assume you like when you're on TV. Like I, re- I don't do well with it.
1: So when you're at a rally and you have like a joke and people laugh or you say something really moving and people cheer, mm-hmm. does that give you any energy? Do you like that? Or you could do do without it? That's
0: cool because then I know we're all on the same page. Mm-hmm. But there's also a little bit of separation. I have actual like physical protection if I'm speaking at something. I'm on stage behind a podium. Mm-hmm. People can't touch me that I don't know.
1: Oh, and, I hate that. Yeah. And because I've
0: been like the, the best friend, like I I've played some pretty rad chicks who, like, you would want to be friends with. So people, whether they're cognizant of it or not, think they know me. And Mm -hmm. people who I do not know touch me in very intimate ways. Really? They make me very uncomfortable. And so I've had to learn over the years how to navigate that. And so I'm sure when you're like, were you mean? Like, I'm sure there are people who are like, I met her and she was a fucking bitch. And then there's people who are like, oh, my God, I met her. We had the best conversation ever. But there have been people who have like approached me in physical ways. And like, I can't shake that. Like I don't, when somebody grabs me or gropes me or like puts their arm around my waist and like pulls me against their body the way that I don't, I mean, I don't know that I do that with anyone. Like it really, that throws me for a loop and it's hard for me to shake it.
1: You have to do what Jennifer Aniston does. Cause I heard that she will have like you know she's because think of her. She's like the ultimate I mean, please, version the, of that. Yeah, I could so never she's like just like waving and smiling, and there's like a bitch being like, "Get back away, get away!" No, she's not taking any pictures, and she's like, "Oh, okay, I, I'm sorry, I can't." Yeah, they won't but let Jennifer
0: me. Aniston <laughs> has all of the money and has like a I staff know, I know. of people who do that. So for the for the rest of us who like are very happy for life, but don't like, I don't have a team of like bodyguards and and deflection humans. And I'm sure if I were literally the most famous person on the
1: planet. I would, but it's like, I I don't know. It's also hard for women because, like, my husband doesn't understand, like, he's, well, he understands now because I've explained it to him, but he (laughs) he always wants, when we we go on the road together because we tour together, he wants to say hi to everybody after the show. Mm -hmm. And, like, I don't want to do that. And he's like, well, a lot of, you know, big comics do it, shake their hands. Mm -hmm. And it's like, as a woman, I have very little interest in talking to, you know, random people just because, like, first of all, it dissipates a lot of my energy and also, not that I don't want to meet fans, but I'm, like, scared. You know? Yeah. Like, remember that girl? It was, like, re- a couple of years ago. She was on – was some girl was on one of those, like, talent shows. And, like, some guy just came up and, like, hugged her and, like, stabbed her mm-hmm. or shot her. I don't know. It was, like, yeah. you know, guys – people think they can, like, hug you and touch you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm not checking for weapons at my show, like, mm-hmm. before people come in. And it just feels like – No, it's really scary. I, I don't really want to put myself in that position. I'm a mother. Mm-hmm. You know? It's, like – I'm, I'm doing the show.
0: And you have the right to be afraid in that way. And I think that it speaks to a more interesting— I hate that I am. <laughs> yeah, but it speaks to a more interesting cultural experience where men don't walk around afraid. Mm-hmm. So interactions with strangers, predominantly for men, are just interactions. And for us, it's like, it's scary. And for me, you know— yeah, a lot of people have been so incredibly nice and wonderful, but I've had people touch me inappropriately. I've had people ask me really inappropriate questions. I've had people do really inappropriate things to me. And so a couple of those experiences with, like, the amount of death and rape threats that any woman in, in the public eye gets daily on the internet— then I'm kind of like, I don't feel super safe around a bunch of strangers because you might be a nice person, but you might be the person who sent me that really fucking creepy DM this morning. I don't
1: know you. I have to say, if it was all women, I probably would meet them afterwards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. That's so rude. But like, I don't know. I mean. But I get it. No it's, offense, it's guys. It's complex. And I think that's also
0: why it's cool. You know, you see these, these things happening where people do like conventions or these meet and greet things and whatever and like at least in in those arenas you everyone's on the same page and i've i've had so much fun at those things cuz like you have
1: like people ushering yeah. you along and,
0: and it's stuff, and right? it's organized and there's like contingency plans and and i also know i know what to expect and people know what to expect and like we have so much fun like we me and hillary last year helped these this girl propose to her girlfriend at one of them and it was like awesome. We were sobbing. I was like, oh my God, I love this. You know, but, but yeah, there's, I'm realizing as we're talking about it, that there's an experience of, or an estimation of safety in those environments. And then it doesn't. That men take
1: for granted. Yeah. Not that people can't also harm men, but you know, it's just like. But it's different. I mean, we are more raped than men. Mm -hmm. I think that's. Yay stats. (laughs) Oh man. But, you know, we're lucky because more women are, like, in control now. And there's more women who are heads of studio. I mean, heads of studios. Like, you have to realize, you know, when the movie industry started, there were zero women in charge. Yes. Zero. You know? So women were just, like, at the mercy. I mean, you hear these stories, like... No one was believed when they were raped, when mm-hmm. they would tell their moms they were raped, the mom's like, you go apologize to that man. I mean, that's where we used to be. Like yeah. so I think that the Me Too movement is like I, I think it's going to be remembered in our history. God, I, hope so. I think it's a really big thing because it it's just a shift and we can all feel it. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that men are more fearful now. And that's good. Yeah. because they will not take advantage of women right as much or they'll hire prostitutes instead of trying to molest their secretaries or whatever they're doing you know or rape actresses and i think that you know it's 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 getting better
0: yeah god i don't know and and i'm happy that at least we're having the conversations that we're having conversations about workplace environment that we're having conversations about how to protect sex workers and what the sex trade actually is, that we're having conversations about, you know, as we're having the conversation about our experiences as women, the thing I'm really also excited about that I'm hearing more and more now is men talking about how this has caused a reckoning for them. And they're all realizing they've been denied the permission to have any emotion but anger. And then it's like, well, then, yeah, why do we think they wind up being more violent? If you, if you only are celebrated for expressing anger, if you're told that that's the only emotion you ever get to have, you're not supposed to be vulnerable, why do we think we have these outcomes? I, I don't know. It's It feels like a mess, but a hopeful mess to me.
1: And there's so many men who want to be involved in the solution, obviously. Yeah. You know, so it's like we're not talking to everyone, but it's just like I think they do take it for granted a little bit. Yeah, well, it's there's easy. Just the safety thing is like, the, the most base version of that.
0: Absolutely. And I think that that's what's so cool. Like when you talk about how you discuss that with your husband, something that has been amazing in my experience over the last couple of years is just having these kinds of frank conversations with men. They're so shocked. They're like, wait, that's your experience every day? And it's like, yeah. <laughs> how are you? How do you want to help with it if it's shocking to you? You know? And
1: how can they help though? Because they're not responsible for like, you know the general population. No, but I think they. I think just they by can, talking about it and raising awareness. Yeah, and and I think they can be more cognizant of the teaching of, each other exactly
0: the kinds of conversations they have with each other. You know, I mean, you you were just saying that you and your husband tour together. You did a Netflix special together. You do a podcast together. I imagine that aside from being really fun because you guys are married and you love each other, that that's been really eye opening for him.
1: Totally. Yeah. And sometimes I'll like bring things I want to talk to him about and kind of hijack the podcast (laughs) because he's like, you can always say anything. So I was like, okay, well, actually, I'd like to talk about your phone addiction. And then with no prep. And then I feel like we sometimes have some good conversations because he has to kind of like address me because it's on air. (laughs) It's very so smart. I'm, I'm using it to my advantage.
0: I love it. What is it like to work so closely in so many arenas with your partner?
1: Well, it just has to be the right partner and and honestly like I don't know, I it's not every relationship that that's mm-hmm. the best idea. And also I think that our relationship's good if it's if we also have our own careers and our own things we're doing and then we yeah. get together for like a tour or a podcast, you know, so it's not like we're every single project, we're a team, we're a duo, right. you know, I, I think it's good to have like that sort of in and out. And, and I, yeah. I the thing with Moshe, my husband, he, t- cause I had dated a lot of comedians and cause that's who I hung out with. Yeah. And then when I met him, he was like, I was like, Hey, do you mind if I say that thing on stage that happened to us? You know, cause kind of making fun of you a little bit, you know, cause like yeah. I would have material about him and he was like, Oh, you never have to ask me. He's like, the stage is free reign. You can say whatever you want. And I was like, really? Are you sure? He's like, 100%. And he's just like maintained that. And most men, most comics, or at least some of the people I had known and dated, they were like, can you not? Me too. I'm like, can you not say that, please? Like, you know, it's private. But he's just like very open. And as long as it's for the stage, he does not care. So that kind of made it very easy for me because there's not a lot of like, you know, awkwardness about talking about each other.
0: Yeah. How long have you guys been together now? I think, like, six years. Wow. That's so cool. And did you meet out on a tour or at a comedy club? Well, like I said, like, you know,
1: all the the comedians kind of know each other. Yeah. So hanging out at the comedy clubs, you just start to, like, talk to people. And then, you know, you're, like, 14th on a list to go up. And then you're at a festival. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like that was, like, one of the greatest gifts of being a comedian is, like, the amazing scene of hilarious people, smart people, damaged people, you know, people like you yeah. that you get to like hang out with almost every night just when you're doing your job. That's
0: so cool. It's very lucky. It's so cool. When – I want to go back a little bit because this is obviously the more recent stuff, you know, what, what you two are doing together. But obviously I referenced your first comedy album. And I think – Coke Bunny came out in 2011?
1: Is I that right? I have no idea. I think it's 2011. It's fine. <laughs> I might know that. What's... I guess that, that's like almost 10 years isn't ago. Isn't that crazy? I should do an anniversary and get rid of all my CDs because oh I still God. have like 10,000 of them. Please. So at the 10-year anniversary, I'll send everyone a disc man and, and CD. the CD. Honestly,
0: it's my favorite <laughs> idea we've come up with all day. What... um what was it like? Because, you know, you're talking earlier about how you're on the circuit and you're performing and you create this regimen for yourself and you're you're getting better. You're workshopping. You know, you're learning to pay attention to all the comedy around you.
1: And you have to understand, too, you're working to let You have nothing. So you're like trying to get a showcase. Mm. You know, you're trying to get a late night show, a showcase to get on the Tonight Show where they're, mm. you know, seeing 30 people on this show. You know what I mean? So there's like all these little steps and then maybe that will lead you to an agent and maybe that. So it, you know, you have to imagine like part of what drives people too is you have nothing. Right. You know, and you want something. So it's like, that's one of the challenges with getting things is you, your drive can dissipate because you then you get the thing. But anyway, I didn't mean to cut you off.
0: No, but I'm just so curious how you go from working that circuit to winding up Doing your first comedy album, you know, being on Chelsea Handler's show—how does all of that happen?
1: I mean, for me, my trajectory—it it has been up, but it's like extremely slow and like extremely gradual. You know what I mean? So it's like each year, it's like a little tiny more. You know, so it's. I feel like I'm inching along and, you know, sometimes you look at people's IMDb and it's like, oh, they were here and then like, boom, they got on that hit show. And, you know, it's like right. that never really happened for me. So I think that I just like would, you know, after probably 10 years of standup, I put out Coke Money, which your first album is always the easiest because you've usually been working 10 years for it. And then mm. where you can really tell if people are good is then there's se- now there's demand then they put out their second album in a one-year time period or a two-year time period as right. opposed to the first album where it's like you couldn't get a break. to, You couldn't get anyone to agree to an album. So you have so much like so much stuff that you're working on and so many things. And it's so rich because it's been like 10 years in the making. Mm.
0: So what's it like between a first and second?
1: Chal- more, way more challenging, I think. You know? And do you do you put pressure on yourself to live up to the first one? And also, I'm not the kind of comedian who puts out a album every year. And right. I think that I would love to talk to one of them about their process because yeah. I'm very enamored by it and impressed by it. But like, you know, you'll often hear people like, yeah, I'm running the running the hour. You know, like running the new hour. That's like a big thing that comedians do mm. every year. Wow. And I'm just not that I I feel like I have to live through all of my things to be able to write about them. And sometimes I haven't processed things enough to be able to write so, you know. Quickly. Yeah, like have it in a year, you know.
0: So what's it like to do a Comedy Central roast? I'm just like so curious. I mean, because you… You've done a few. You roasted Justin Bieber. Like, is that
1: scary? It's very scary because it's like all these celebrities. and like I had not met half of them. And then I'm Whoa. like gonna make like jokes about them, you know, and jokes about their weight or like, you know what I mean? Like whatever roast jokes are. So it's like obviously stressful. yeah, um, and it's like, and do I would not do it again, I don't think, really. Well, because I did it. You know what I mean? And, like, I don't know that I would, like, be inspired enough to to do it because it was, like, you know, I I like the challenge of something. Mm. that seems scary. I think that's the thing. Like, you want to just keep, like, get For me, like, I'm really good on adrenaline and if the situation seems, like, challenging. Right. And so when I know that I'm bored if something's, like, too easy. So I want to – I never want to get into that. Like, some musician told me the other day – he was, I I work on this show and he was doing a guest star. And he said that, he said, he goes, he's on like a, he's in a band. I don't want to say a band, but it's like, they were big in the 90s. And he said, when he, when he's on stage playing guitar, all he can think about is like the car that takes him back to the hotel. (sighs) And that's like all he's thinking about through like the whole time he's on stage. And it's like, you know, how do you how do you get into situations where you can constantly, continually challenge yourself so you're still stimulated and yeah. you're still present and you're still having fun, you know, because like that's that's a, that's not a fun life, really. And that's probably a lot of people's experience. And he's got a cool job. Yeah. He's a rock star. He's like the coolest job That a kid can imagine.
0: (laughs) But isn't that so interesting because really everything is just relative. And whatever you do becomes normal to you. Yeah.
1: So he's – you look at him and you're like, wow, he's like able to like – he's living the dream. He's making money off of being a rock star and he's got all these fans. And and he's so bored. Yeah.
0: Oh, what a bummer.
1: So I think that for me, like when he told me that, I was like, there are places in my life where sometimes I feel that and I don't Mm -hmm. want to – like someone told me I went to, <laughs> I went to do a show and I forget some I forgot I did this, but I was just in Portland and the guy at the comedy club, he's like, Yeah, last time you were that you were here, you um, when you were doing your closer, you told everyone you were gonna call your lift, and you called your lift as soon as like, <laughs> like when you got on stage. Like when I was getting off stage, I was like, okay, hold on. And like before I did my closer, I called my lift, and then when I was done, you know, I got my applause, and then I like walked, he said I walked right right through the green room. I said, mail mail my agent my check. And then I got into the list. <laughs> and so, I mean, it does become, you know, I'm, that's definitely not like a challenging situation for me. So then I'm like, okay, right. I need to like up it a little bit. Yeah. I don't I, know how. But that's
0: interesting because it's a reminder that it's on us to reinvigorate ourselves and our passion for things and figure
1: out how to love what we do. because And be and be so happy to get to do what you do because it's, you know, it's, it's a gift. Yeah. And you know, you, as you know, I'm sure like what you acting was probably easy for you. You were probably pretty good at it at 21. You know, you're like getting this great part in a TV show that becomes a hit and you become a star. And it's like, you know, you obviously are better at this than you're naturally good at it, you know? And so it's like, that's a gift that you've been given. And it's like, you don't want to ever, you know, people would probably kill for it. Because there are people mm-hmm. who want to do things, but they're like extremely untalented. <laughs> oh, no, I mean, not everyone has like the yeah. ability, you know, and it's then you've got to find what you're good at. And it's really hard. And when you that's what my mom always told me, she's like, you always knew what you wanted to do. And you know, I, I'm so, I, I was, she was very like envious of, of that because nothing ever came to her Yeah, and probably because, you know, our generation of women, or I, I might be older than you, I am older than you, but like our, we're still in that generation where like there was the birth control pill. That's why I mm-hmm. said like Planned Parenthood, it's like my mom had me and she had three kids by the time she was like 24. Yeah. Wow. You know, or 25. And then it's like, how and how are you supposed to follow your dreams? How are you supposed to get a notebook? Like when I had my notebook of how many times I was going on stage, Mm -hmm. I was like 29. You know what I mean? So I was channeling all of that energy that someone like my mom, who was like raising kids in the 80s, put into the kids by like, you know, getting them orthodontist or whatever they had to do. And it's like, now I didn't have to deal with any of that because we have the fucking pill. It's so awesome. Yeah, you got to have a baby when you wanted to have a baby. At 43. Wow, a revolution. <laughs> and then I was able to, like, have this career. And it's like, yeah, not that everyone, you know, I also was very fortunate because I was able to freeze my eggs at 37 because I had $10,000. Not everyone has that. But if, right. you, if you do and you could figure out how to do it, you can kind of prolong it and have this career. Like, your uterus yeah. stay, stays healthy and supple until your sixties if you hey, need girl. it. I don't yeah. I'm not saying I recommend having a baby when you're 60 with your frozen. But people egg. have done it. Exactly. You so do it's you. Like we're so lucky that we're able to follow our dreams and yeah. not have these fucking babies in our twenties.
0: Well and not have them when we don't want to. Because if you want to have a baby at twenty five great and exactly. if you want to have a baby at forty five
1: great it should be up to you. Exactly.
0: You mentioned the show, can you tell us about it?
1: Oh, yes. I'm on a show. It's called Broke. It's on CBS. It airs April 2nd after Mom. It is a network comedy. It is a multicam. So there's a live studio audience. I don't want that to throw anybody off. And it is starring Polly Perrette. I don't know if you know her. She's from NCIS. And she plays my sister. And then Jaime Camille. He's a very big star in Mexico. He's from Jane the Virgin. And basically, I play Jaime's wife. Uh, He's a billionaire in the show and we're living off of his father's money. (laughs) And then his dad cuts us off because we buy a pyramid. And then I'm forced, we're forced to go back to Reseda and live with my sister, Polly, and her son. And she's a divorced mom. So it's like all of us living in this house. But my husband and I, Jaime, have been used to like being billionaires for so long that, you know, we're having a very hard time adjusting.
0: That's so funny.
1: So that's you know that's the pretty much the show yeah. from my point of view. <laughs> I'm like it's all about me. But no. you do
0: so much hilarious comedy about privilege that I feel I like love that's class
1: perfect. and I've always been like very obsessed with class and yeah. I feel like that is something that I really picked up in college because I really fell in love in like literature. Like, well, you probably know you're a lit major. Like I really loved like Edith Wharton and all the things about like the turn of the century and the Gilded Age. And Mm -hmm. that led me to creating Another Period. And so like I've always kind of had this like obsession with class. Mm -hmm. So I'm really happy that I get to, you know, be in a show where that's the theme.
0: Yeah, you get to muse on it. Can, Can you tell listeners about Another Period? I think it's so brilliant.
1: So another period is a show I created with Ricky Lindholm about the Gilded Age. And it's basically if like the Kardashians lived at Downton Abbey. And (laughs) we play these uh, sisters, the Bellacourt sisters, and we're really trying to get famous. But it's 1902. And so it's really hard to get famous. So, you know, we try so many stupid things. And we had three seasons on Comedy Central. And I love it. I'm so glad it exists. Unfortunately, it wasn't streaming. So, you know, it it was harder to watch. But Mm. I think that... It's on it. You can buy it on iTunes. Love you it. can stream it on Comedy Central if you can access their paywall. Cool. Who doesn't love a paywall? Just love a paywall. <laughs> but it's a very funny show and I'm so proud to be a part of it. And there's so many hilarious comedians in it. Um, Mike Liam Black, Dave Keckner Brett Gelman, Beth Dover, Brian Husky, Jason Ritter, like we were just so, Padgett Brewster, Mm -hmm. David Wayne. It was just like the most amazing experience. And I'm so happy that we were able to do that for three years. And Jeremy Connor was the director and he created Drunk History with Derek Waters. So he directed all three seasons. So he was like a big collaborator with us and was in the writer's room with us. So yeah, it was such a cool experience. And I'm so happy that Comedy Central let us do it. And they gave us like hardly any notes. And it was like very dark and... You know, I just love that we were able to do that. It was truly a dream job. Like I would walk to work. We we shot in this mansion in Silver Lake and we would walk. I would walk there with my dog, Mayor Cutie, who was also a star <laughs> in the show and she had her own little chair. And um, my husband was an actor and a writer in it. So we would walk together and we would shoot and I was just surrounded by all these hilarious comedians and oh. in this gorgeous mansion and we'd watch the sunset every night. And it was like truly a dream job. But yeah, it was. Uh, and, and now this job I have now, I, I love it. I love it. It's, it's not. It's so much less work <laughs> in the sense that like when you're creating a project, I don't yeah. you know, I don't know how you, I didn't have a child then. So as a woman, it's really hard because so much of my creative energy now, even though, I, you know, I waited so long to have a baby. Now I'm in my 40s and like, you know, it's I want to be with my kid. Mm-hmm. So creating and being the person who everyone needs to come to with every single question every and every decision. single casting and we're editing and we're in the writer's room and, you know, now we're shooting and, you know, wow. you've got to do location scouting and casting and props. You know, it's just like so much stuff, especially on a low-budget comedy. So, yeah but anyway.
0: It's so bad You told me
1: to talk about it for a while. Did I talk about it for long enough?
0: I love it. <laughs> I love it. And we mentioned obviously. This is like a Barbara Walters interview. No, it's great. I just love, I love like knowing how people tick and how it all works. And you mentioned that you and Moshe worked on that together. And I know we touched on the fact that you have a podcast, but I just want to tell the listeners it's called the Endless Honeymoon Podcast.
1: It's the Endless Honeymoon Podcast. Moshe and I, we have this, you know, we have a Netflix show, a special called the Honeymoon Stand-Up Special where he Mm -hmm. does a half hour. I do a half hour. And then at the end, we do live relationship counseling. (laughs) And so basically our podcast, the Endless Honeymoon podcast, we do pretty much we'll have a fight of the week. Like I told you, I'll sometimes like hijack something that I want to talk about. And then we will take calls and people will call in and tell us their problems. And we will kind of, you know, make fun of them a little bit, but then also try to help. I mean, between the two of us, I've had like 10, you know, Pretty serious relationships, and he's had sex with over four hundred women. So I feel <laughs> <laughs> I'm his first relationship. The two of you but know between a lot the two combined. of us <laughs> and all of his AA training, and right. uh, you know, I, I feel like we we have a good balance of like offer and you know wisdom too, just from being older. A lot yeah. of like young people call in, oh, and I, I love think it's that. really cute because I was like, why is everyone in their twenties? You know, and I was like, oh, these people like don't know they they just. you know, they just started being in relationships. They're trying to figure it out. Yeah, they're trying to figure it out. So that's fun. And then we have a secrets hotline, which I can give you. And people call Mm -hmm. in their secrets and confess things anonymously. And then we make fun of those sometimes with guests.
0: I love that. (laughs) God, I love the call-in. I think that that's so fun. It strikes me that it's kind of like a roast meets therapy. And I really like it.
1: Exactly. That's a great way to describe it. Yeah, I'm into it.
0: So I love that so many younger people searching for answers are calling in. If you, if you put yourself in your 20-year-old shoes or your 25-year-old shoes, now doing what you do, knowing what you know, is there advice you'd give yourself? Like if, you, if young Natasha called into your show?
1: That is so… You mean about relationships or about… Anything. I mean, whatever comes to mind, honestly. I was not focused on relationships, really, because, like, I was so career-oriented and everything was so challenging Mm -hmm. that I felt like I didn't… Relationships were like a sidebar. Yeah. You know? But that's so hard because I feel like so much of my struggle led me to funny stories and, you know, things that I all of a sudden came to like realizations that came at the right time, you know? So that's so hard. Is there, I mean, I, I don't know. That's what's, what's yours. Ooh. Um, see, it's hard. It is really hard, but I, I think about it. It's
0: interesting when you say that because yeah, I was always, I think I naively assumed that if you were good and worked hard, you really could just have it all. And, and that people would would take you at your real face value. And it took me getting kind of knocked around to realize that the, the misogyny and the way that we treat women in our business in particular is like really real. And that a guy can do something, like if a girl does something 50% of the way and a guy does it 75% of the way, same thing. She'll still be criticized for the 50%, you know?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That... I just was really naive to all of that. And I think that if I could look back at my, you know, 20-year-old self, I would just warn her about some shit, <laughs> you know, to to not feel obligated to answer every question that was asked of her in an interview or be open about her life. Or I, I, I would have—I I now would want to protect my younger self a lot more because I didn't have anybody protecting me. Um, that's really nice. Back then,
1: I think like also, you know, the thing you're asking me is like, I have to teach my kid that stuff, you know? So I, I think the thing that like held me back is I needed to become like a nicer person because I'm telling you, if I would have got your break, I would have been, I would have been like, you know, mommy dearest. (laughs) Like I'd be like young mommy dearest. I would have been like, because I just was like not aware of other people you know, like it kind of took me a long time and I had to like read the road less traveled and get Mm -hmm. like so much rejection that like, you know, it's like that was just my trajectory for whatever reason, you know. And then I remember I met this guy and he was like told because I was on the set with him like early on in my career and he was like talking to everybody. And I was like, what? why do you like, you know, you're talking to like, every single person on the set like he knew everyone's name and he's like oh my dad taught me that every human interaction is sacred and i was like whoa like you taught your kid that like that's yeah. like i mean i'm sure like my mom would agree with that but she was too busy to like you know like people that's like wisdom that n- yeah. not a lot of people are able to impart on their children so it's like you you know i think that i really needed to be shaken up a little bit because mm-hmm. i was just very self involved you know, and and I thought that, like, all that mattered was me getting an agent, you know, or whatever it was, or commercial or, right. you know. So I think that hopefully I'm able to always be a positive force, you mm-hmm. know, because as you know, like, then you start working, you're like, oh, all I can do in the world right now is, you know, like, that's one thing I hate. Like, I have some friends who are, like, very into issues, but then they're assholes to their friends. You know, mm. it's like, all you can really control is your behavior, you know? And if you can make all your interactions, like make people in a, at least don't lower their mood from being around them. If you can at least like keep it how it is or raise it as much as you can. And I know that takes a lot of energy, but like that to me should be like a personal goal. It's called interpersonal environmentalism. It is a movement I'm starting. (laughs) No, but it's something I discussed on like an old podcast, but it is like a thing where it's like, you know, at least it gives you something that you can control. Yeah. Because uh, don't you feel very out of control right now? Like, I feel like it's very hard to even turn on your in- your computer because it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's a battlefield, you know? And yeah. then everything is such bad news and I don't know how to – I mean, you're – well, I think what, what you do is really inspiring because I looked at your Wikipedia and, like, you are a part of, like, how many charities? 50? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. like i mean how, how that takes so much energy like i feel like that would be a goal for me like i i'm so in, like how how are you able to do that
0: well i think it's about for me it's about showing up where i can really be useful i'm interested it takes so in much everything. energy yeah yeah but I'm i'm genuinely interested in everything and so what i realized years ago was for us with these big platforms and these big audiences, people will tell entertainers, like, pick a cause and stick to it. And I'm like, well, that's fucking stupid. A doctor would never like look at your bicep and no other part of your body if you were sick. Everything's interconnected in the body and interconnected in the world.
1: Oh, they always tell actresses that, pick a yeah, cause. pick a cause, so cause and
0: stick <laughs> to it. It's like, go fuck yourself. And so what I realized was, let's say I picked one thing and let's say it was cancer not everyone who follows me on Instagram or Twitter or listens to this podcast is going to be into cancer. And not everyone's going to be into women's rights. And not everyone's going to care about sex trafficking. And not everyone's going to care about the environment. But everyone cares about something. And if I take my platform as a privilege and pay it forward and try to disseminate as much quality information on as many topics as I can and try to lend my voice and and my audience to as many good causes out there as I can— the more likely it is that collectively
1: we'll raise all these issues up. I mean, that's so true and so inspiring, but like that takes so much of your energy, doesn't it?
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm researching and reading the news and information on this stuff probably five hours a day.
1: What? It's a lot. Do you need just like bodies to help? Will you just call me and then I'll come help you? Oh my God. Okay. And then I can feel like I'm helping too. (laughs) Also, I was a
0: nanny and a camp counselor. I will play with your baby and it'll be really fun.
1: (laughs) Wait, you really spend five hours a day researching causes? Or like,
0: and the news and current events and politics and, but yeah, I mean. And and how do you, how do you
1: get, like, don't you, doesn't it make you feel like depressed. Some days there some are… Some days I'm like, I don't mm-hmm. want to tell the internet what I'm doing. I don't want to post any pictures. Yep. I don't want to read any at replies. Mm-hmm. I don't want to look at Twitter. Oh, I, yeah. I just want to go away for like two weeks. No, yeah. There's days when I take a break and… I mean, Twitter's like… I feel Twitter's like I'm going to have a panic attack.
0: Yeah. No, it's accessible. But it's also a really important place to do, you know, just a lot of information sharing. And so I take it in that way. And it's interesting. I put some guards on… My Twitter, you know, when they made available the tool where you can block certain words and the amount, the amount, the percentage by which my at replies have decreased is shocking. But I'm like, great. I don't want to, I don't want to read insults and rape threats. I don't want to read them. So I don't anymore. And it's awesome. You
1: get rape threats.
0: Oh, yeah. People really don't like political women. And I'm just not here for it. You know, and, and when people say, well, if you block someone, then they don't get to learn from you anymore. I'm like, yeah, I don't care. <laughs> you know, there there are, there's a way to have a disagreement and then there's a way to be just patently rude and insulting. And I'm not here for that. So there are people who, when they're really disgusting, I erase. And I have a, I actually have a photo stream on my phone that is like a violent, and, and harassing sort of hub, which is sad. But anytime anything crazy comes in, I screenshot it and it goes into the photo stream. And then three different lawyers and two police officers get a notification. So they can constantly be looking into stuff. And it's like a
1: super shitty way. Do you find that the more you try to put yourself out there, the more threats you get?
0: Oh, for sure. And the more you put yourself out there about quote unquote, controversial, Mm -hmm. controversial things. And I don't think that civil rights are controversial. I don't think that women's rights are controversial. I don't think that reproductive health is controversial. And I don't think the fact that 78% of Americans want to see a criminal president who runs America like an organized crime organization removed from office is controversial either. And if you don't agree with me, that's fine. That's your prerogative. But you don't have a right to threaten my safety. And so it's a shitty thing that I have to have a photo stream that law enforcement is on. But I do, and so I do, and you know, for me, I'm I'm just like if you think that that these bullshit messages are gonna make me back down, like you you've never sat with me and you don't
1: know me that well. I'm and sorry you know, that happens to you. That seems very stressful. Thanks. It is. And I don't know if I can handle that. That's
0: why I take some days off the internet, like. Uh, Season 2 of Sex Education just came out on Netflix, Mm -hmm. February 17th. Don't worry, I wasn't counting. Or was it January? It was January 17th. What am I saying? And I I gave myself a day. And I literally just binge-watched the entire season. I didn't look at my phone. I turned it off, actually. I, like, didn't answer emails or phone calls. I don't answer email anyway. I'm trash at that. And, oh, my God, it was divine. (laughs) It was divine. And I just watched these kids, like, living— living their lives in the way that the writers of that show are so brilliant. Like, honestly, it makes me cry. And there is— I'm going to do this.
1: I want to do this tomorrow. you you need a day. Just a day of sex
0: education. I'm telling you. I'm going to do it. God, that show is so good. And there's an episode in season two that really— one of the characters has an experience with unwanted sexual touching, which is, you know, sexual assault. The way it affects her through the season and then this episode— where all these girls kind of like rally around their friend to change her energy around it, I was laughing and clapping and sobbing. My dog was like running in circles barking. He didn't know what was going on. And I just was like, this is so important. I
1: have to watch this.
0: Yeah. And, you know, you need days like that.
1: Well, anyway, you're very inspiring. And if you need extra bodies. I
0: I love a research day in a group. (laughs) Let's do it. Yeah. And… God, I think you're so inspiring. But
1: so many people just give money. That's what I'm saying. Like, you're not just happy giving money. You want to actually be at the front of it. And and that's that's, that's where you belong. But it's just like that just takes like I just am like afraid to stick my neck out in that way sometimes. I get it because it's scary because it's scary. Uh, Yeah, especially listening to you talk about these death threats. It's
0: like scary to walk around in the world as a woman, let alone to like make yourself a target. But yeah, especially when you think about ways to participate and and to your point, like giving versus raising, you know, giving money, whatever. I always think about it and I'm like, yeah, I mean, cool. I can can write a check. I can't write checks that are going to make that much of a difference like some people can, you know, again, like I'm not Jen Aniston yet. (laughs) Um, But the way I think about it too is, you know, if I donate money, that's great, but I already know about it. So what if I use the platform and run a fundraiser and then a million other people learn about this and we do it together and together we're going to raise so much more money than any of us could give alone, And that feels really exciting too. You know, it's like the whole point for me is to figure out how we as a collective learn to advocate for each other in better ways.
1: Do you see your activism as like one day you want to run for office or something or do you see it more as like this is just my baseline duty?
0: It's my baseline duty and the the increase in the number of times per week I get asked that question, I'm like, shit. Maybe I should run for office because <laughs> everybody like, tells I me I spending should.
1: Five hours a day reading the news. <laughs> Literally, like
0: everybody like, oh, you're going to run for office. I'm like, am
1: I going to run for office?
0: But then also, it's you know, the doctor in you. Maybe, but like selfishly, I'm also you're like, too good to be an I actress. Have stories I want to tell. <laughs> no, I want to like, I want to make more shows. I really like it. It's fun for me. Mm-hmm. So I don't know.
1: I mean. Maybe there's. I was a- just wondering if, if it's like something else that's driving you. But I, I anyway, no. regardless, it's very inspiring. No, I don't have like a secret. Hit me plant. up for money. Hit me up for like <laughs> anything you need. I wanna, okay. I wanna like be a part of, you know, I, I wanna help I, as much as I can, but I'm not good at the, the research part. Like I am very bad
0: at Oh my God, I love it. I'll start. I wanna sending, come on your train. I'll start sending you articles. Like, watch out. Also, I, it's funny because we all feel like we have things to learn from each other. I I wanna learn I there's so much about comedy that I love and I know there's a science to it and there's things that I don't understand about it and I want to learn that. So maybe I'll like come and watch. I'll your teach kid you comedic and then, timing. Yeah. <laughs> or like just how how stand-up works. Cause I understand comedic timing. No, I know like I in know, TV. But like stand-up, I don't get it and I love it and I wanna know how I wanna know how that Do you wanna do stand-up? I don't know if I wanna do it. I just wanna understand the mechanics
1: of it. It feels very scary Gotta to do that. Gotta do it, honey. That feels so scary. Mm, I can tell you want to do it. I don't know. Okay, we'll write you some jokes. We'll get that we'll get your three so minutes scary. together. I just
0: love that as a stand-up, you get to just like get up and talk shit. Well, oh, I have an idea. In a really fun and thought-provoking way. How about
1: your next rally? You. <laughs> that just literally
0: made every do cell in my body tighten up like this. Like,
1: I know, I know. It's hard.
0: But I just think it's so cool.
1: Talk about a sensitive crowd, huh? It might I mean, be hard to...
0: It might be a little hard. <laughs> be like, this might not be the place. <laughs> but I don't know. It's cool. Anyway, we're getting we're getting off topic. Well, we're not off topic, but I, I do have to ask you my my last and favorite question. And I okay. feel like I've held you hostage here for a really long time, and you probably want to go home and see I just it. want to get
1: my nails done like uh, yours. I mean,
0: honestly, I'm so proud of myself. This has—I've never had this before, and it's. Oh really? Great. Oh yeah, no. I'm like I'm like, a couple of months in to treating my nails well, and I feel like a different person. And sometimes I look at my hands and I'm like, whoa. But what happens when they start pain, like girl? chipping and stuff? Well, I broke these two, which is sad. But I don't know. I'm so sorry. I know. It's just such a severe problem, given all the things happening in the world. Yeah, I don't know. I,
1: we'll see. So what's my question? Now I'm You're, scared.
0: No, it's a, it's good. It's an easy question. But I ask it of everyone because I like hearing their answers. And it's my podcast and I can do what I want. The podcast is called Work in Progress. Okay. And when, that, when you hear that phrase, what comes to mind as a work in progress in your life?
1: I mean, <laughs> the obvious one, us. Does everyone say that? No. Really? What do you mean us? Like… Like, is like, as humanity? People. Well, like, don't you feel like you're a work in progress? Oh, yeah. I mean, I feel like I said stupid things on, on this show, and <laughs> the next one will be better. I mean, I don't <laughs> know. I feel like we're all kind of—isn't that what we're doing every day is trying to, like, get information and learn things and, yeah, you know, get to higher places, I guess? Yeah. That seems like—is this a trick question? That feels right. No. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. I mean, my house needs work. That's a work in progress. That's a thing too. <laughs> and yeah. I do love decorating.
0: Oh my god! I know the Rose Bowl is like my kryptonite. That's really fun. <sighs> well,
1: all right. So you and me and your house, and you're, I'm, I get to come along with you to the next rally. Absolutely. I'll just watch. Come hang. And if I think of any jokes or something, you just <laughs> I'll text them. Do to you, you write? Do you do you have like a notes file of jokes in your phone? I'll text myself. Got it's it. It's not a good system. I always wonder how that works. Because then I'll, like, forget to look, and then, like, all of a sudden they're, like, in the cloud, and then i got to figure out how to, like, access them because they're from too long ago to still be on my phone, you know. But I, there's different systems. But I do find huh. texting myself is, like, the quickest way yeah. if there's something that I definitely don't want to forget. Because then right. I'm, like, if it was important enough, then I'll go home and transfer it into my computer.
0: Got it. All right. The more you know. Thanks so much for coming today. Thank you for having me. Yeah. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresneck. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. This episode was edited by Matt Sasaki. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by brilliant Anatomy.